Christchurch, New Malden, 22nd of September 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series Romans and the Covenant, The Covenant in Jeopardy, Part 2. Okay, well, it is quite a number of years now since I was a school teacher, but one of the things that I do remember from those days was my pupils or students on occasion, hopefully not too often, getting the wrong end of the stick. Hearing something that I'd said, but then showing by their response to it that they'd badly misunderstood what I meant. Now, history was my subject that I taught, and it seemed especially prone to this. So here are some of the best howlers that I came across. First one. Socrates was a famous Greek teacher who died from an overdose of wedlock. <laughs> some of you will know that's meant to be hemlock, which is a poison. An overdose of wedlock. I wonder whether people do die of that. Elizabeth Taylor, maybe, I don't know. Here's another one, though. The sun never set on the British Empire because the British Empire is in the east and the sun sets in the west. And another one. The Greeks were a highly sculptured people. They also had lots of myths. A myth is a female moth. And I think my, my favourite one, uh, which I told one or two of you the other day because I enjoyed it so much, uh, my favourite one was a schoolboy who apparently thought that Anne Boleyn was an iron. And when he was asked why on earth he thought Anne Boleyn was an iron, he quoted his textbook, which said this, Henry VIII, having disposed of Catherine of Aragon, pressed his suit with Anne Boleyn. <laughs> Misunderstandings can be good fun, can't they? And they make us smile, and uh, sometimes they're harmless. And sometimes misunderstandings are the opposite. Sometimes misunderstandings are really quite serious, and they really need to be corrected. And that's what we're seeing in Romans chapter 3, the first part of Romans chapter 3, the really famous bit we're looking at next week with Katie Lofman. We're looking at the less famous bit, which covers the first two-thirds of the chapter this week. What Paul is trying to do in this part of Romans chapter 3 is deal with a series of misunderstandings. Misunderstandings, potential or actual, of what he said in the previous chapter. False assumptions that either could or have sprung from the things that he said. Christian howlers, we could call them. So last week, if you were here, we looked at Romans chapter 2 and this rather shocking message that Paul delivered that Israel, the people who were meant to be part of God's solution to a sinful world, had instead turned out to be part of the problem. And as I said last week, that appeared to put the whole of God's covenant plan in jeopardy. Israel, as we heard in our first Bible reading from Shervin, and we had that reading last week, but I had it repeated because it's so important to understanding this section of Romans. Israel had been called to be a kingdom of priests. What did that mean? Well, it meant that they were meant to display to the rest of the world what it looked like, what it meant to live under the rule of God. But instead, Israel had really badly failed in that vocation. And it causes Paul to make this really devastating statement where he says God's name is blasphemed by the Gentiles or among the Gentiles because of you. 
That is a deeply shocking statement, isn't it? Israel are called to be a kingdom of priests, to be God's people, precisely so that the pagan world around them can see what it looks like to live under the rule of God. And Israel had failed in that vocation so badly that precisely the opposite had happened. The Gentiles were more likely to blaspheme and despise God because of what they saw within Israel. And of course, as Romans goes on, we'll see how God surprisingly and amazingly still fulfilled his covenant through his son, Jesus Christ, coming to be Israel's Messiah, coming to be Israel in person, and fulfilling within himself everything that Israel had been called to be. We're going to see that, as I say, next week when we look from verse 21 onwards. That's why I stopped Debbie in her tracks, because that's for next week, not for this week. I'll be away, actually. I'm away with my family. But Katie Loffman will be leading us through uh, that part from verse 21 onwards. But what we see before then, and what we're looking at this week, is firstly, before he gets on to talking about how Jesus has amazingly and surprisingly and wonderfully fulfilled God's covenant purposes, what we see this week is Paul responding to ways in which either people had, or as I say, could, misunderstand what he had previously said. And the first of these misunderstandings, which he responds to right at the start of chapter 3, you might want to have a Bible in front of you, page 1130, if that's what you want to do. The first misunderstanding that Paul responds to is the misunderstanding that therefore concludes from everything that is said that Israel and Judaism therefore have no value. That is the first misunderstanding that Paul responds to in this chapter. We see it right at the start. Paul says in verse 1, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Paul has spoken in chapter 2 about Israel failing in her calling to be a witness to the Gentiles. He's also spoken about the circumcision that really counts being a circumcision of the heart rather than that of the flesh, a circumcision of the heart that's open to everyone. And it seems that as a result, there were Christians in Rome who'd started to believe that Judaism maybe had only been established by God as a negative. It had only been established as the wrong sort of religion, so that the rightness of Christianity and the rightness of Jesus could then shine more brightly. And that sort of perspective has continued in later periods of Christian history. So in the second century, there was a uh, teacher, Christian teacher called Marcion, who wanted Christianity and strongly argued that it should be purged of anything that was Jewish. Marcion argued that Christians should abandon the Old Testament. It was about a primitive, barbaric God, and it was best done away with. And he also argued that anything that was too Jewish should be taken out of the New Testament. So that was virtually the whole of Matthew's Gospel, large parts of uh, other parts of the New Testament as well. Another church decided very quickly that Marcion was completely wrong. But that strain of sort of anti-Jewishness has continued. Martin Luther, much later in the 16th century, a great Christian hero who saw some things incredibly clearly that needed to be seen at the time. But he sadly had an almost entirely negative view of Judaism. A view really that it was just there as, as the darkness to contrast with the light that came in Jesus. 
And desperately, sadly, that's a perspective that has more than contributed to a great deal of the anti-Semitism that has developed so tragically throughout Christian history. It's helped contribute that sort of very negative perspective upon the appalling treatment of Jews within supposedly Christian countries. And Paul in Romans is absolutely determined to oppose that. Paul may be just responding to the early sort of beginning of that sort of negativity about Judaism in Israel, but he's absolutely determined to oppose it. In fact, as I said a few weeks ago, it's pretty likely that responded to this, responding to this, is a major reason why he wrote this letter to the Romans. Now, later in the series, when we get to chapter 7, and particularly when we get to chapters 9 to 11, we'll see Paul's full response, the full response that Christians should make to Israel and to the Jews. But for now, he just makes one simple but pretty emphatic point in verse 2. In verse 1 he says, what advantage then is there being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? And in verse 2 he says, much, in every way. First of all, there's loads more to be said, but first of all, they have been entrusted, Paul says, with the very words of God. Now this is the reason why we, as Christians, need to love and respect the Jews. Yes, Paul says that Israel failed in her vocation to be a kingdom of priests, displaying to the world what it meant to live under the rule of God. But that failure was only a repetition of the way in which humanity itself had failed in the similar vocation that it was given in creation. And we must never forget as well that the reason why we possess the scriptures in the Old Testament, the very reason why we have them, is because of their faithful preservation by the Jews and also because of the vital role of Israel in God's salvation plan. And our task as largely or perhaps entirely Gentile Christians, I'm not sure, David Lothman's not here this morning, he's a Jewish Christian, but I think most of us at least, the vast majority of us here are Gentile Christians. Our task is to combine an emphasis on the crucial role of Jesus, of course that's absolutely central to our faith, with a deep gratitude, nonetheless, to our Jewish brothers and sisters for preserving, often through terrible hardship, the inheritance which we have received. That's why we as Christians need to be at the absolute forefront of opposing the evil of anti-Semitism, which is very sadly on the rise today. That doesn't mean we side with Israel against the Arabs necessarily in all the disputes uh, in the Middle East at all. We've got to be completely fair uh, to the Arabs as well. But we need to be at the absolute forefront of opposing the sinister, nasty, creeping evil of anti-Semitism, which hardly needs any encouragement to be on the rise, to be set off. And perhaps if we can express our gratitude to the Jews more fully, perhaps that can form part of commending Jesus to them. Perhaps if we can combine a gratitude towards Jews and the people of Israel with an absolute conviction that Jesus comes to be the fulfilment of the hopes of Israel, then maybe that will be the most powerful combination that is possible. Anti-Semitism has no justification at all within Christian thinking. 
very obviously at its most terrible uh, level, but also at the more subtle level of simply a disparagement of the Jews as being somehow primitive and simply there as a bad example of legalism. We need to do just the opposite. We need to love and respect our Jewish brothers and sisters and be forever grateful to them. So that is something Paul goes on to talk a lot more about in Romans. We'll return to it in uh, chapters 9 to 11 in particular, but he flags it up here, and it's important that we note it. So that's the first misunderstanding that Paul heads off in this chapter, the first assumption that people could sort of make from what he said earlier, and he wants to say, no, that will be completely wrong. But the second one is this. Paul wants them to be clear that it's a complete misunderstanding to believe that Israel's failure will therefore wreck God's covenant plan. He's talked loads about Israel's failure, and people could perhaps be forgiven for thinking, well, if God's chosen people have been such a failure, that must mean that the covenant plan is at very least in total jeopardy. This is in verses 3 to 4. What if some do not have faith, Paul says, and he's thinking about Israel, Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul's response, not at all. Not at all. Not one bit. Let God be true, he says, and every man a liar. The story of the Bible, when you think about it, it's really remarkable uh, to have people uh, possessing a holy book in which their own people come over so badly. But the whole story of the Bible is one of the consistent failure of God's people with even its greatest heroes being part of this. So all of the characters in the Bible who follow God, even the greatest heroes, are deeply flawed. And very often they have a sort of great start and then they tail off and it's a disappointing anticlimax and we're left thinking, well, where are the real heroes in this book? Well, there's one big hero and that's God. Because the Bible may be the story of the failure, the consistent failure of God's people, but it's also the story of God continuing in his glorious faithfulness. And rather, and this is the fascinating bit, rather than God fulfilling his covenant plan despite his people's failure, that would be wonderful enough, the Bible is the story of the way that God actually manages to fulfill his plan through his people's failure. Not despite it, but actually through it. In fact, it's the failure of God's people that helps us to be clear that its success is down to God alone. And that's why Paul adds in verse 4, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And part of the application here, in many ways this passage is uniquely about Israel, but part of the application here to us, an important one, is for us not to lose faith in God when our human leaders fail. Now there have been some pretty high-profile examples of Christian leaders failing in recent times. And it's always damaging to the confidence of those that they lead. It can be really shattering and uh, really destabilising and upsetting. But the whole story of the Bible is one that reassures us that we don't have a God whose plan can be knocked off course by the failure of his people. We have the very opposite. 
we have a God who amazingly can work through that very failure to take his plans forward. And that's something that perhaps all of us need to remember, me included. When our Christian leaders disappoint us or they let us down. Of course they will, because they're flawed human beings like the rest of us. But we've got to combine realism about that with knowing that God isn't knocked off course by the failure of the people that he calls that God amazingly and wonderfully can fulfill and does fulfill his covenant plan, not despite the failure of his people, but amazingly actually through that very failure, which enables God's glory to shine that much more brightly. But that then leads to a further misunderstanding that Paul seeks to head off as well, and that's this. People could, on the basis of what I've just said, believe that God's therefore unfair in bringing his judgment on people who by their very failure are advancing his plan. If it's true what I've just said, that God actually advances his plan not despite his people's failure but actually through their failure, then doesn't that therefore mean that God's unfair? He shouldn't bring his judgment on people who through their failure are part of advancing his plan. And this is in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? And in verse 7, Paul repeats that basically. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And there were some people who were even claiming, probably mischievously and probably to undermine Paul, that his teaching was actually an encouragement for people to do evil so that good would result. And Paul rejects all of that. Paul says all of that is a complete misunderstanding. That is to twist what he's said and take it in directions that are completely wrong. God is good. And it's that goodness that means that God must judge the world. Believing in the reality of that judgment is, as we saw last week, a crucial part of believing in the God of the Bible. But God's judgment is something that wonderfully combines with him sending Jesus to enable us to make it through that judgment. Why? Well, this will be unpacked later on in Romans, but it's basically because what is true of Jesus becomes true of everyone who belongs to Jesus. Everyone who is in Christ, as Paul will later say. And that means that when judgment occurs, those who are part of Jesus, they will pass through that judgment and proceed to salvation. That is another big theme of Romans which is coming up. But for now, what we're seeing is Paul saying all of those misunderstandings, all of those uh, things that get the wrong end of the stick, they are wrong. It's not that Israel and Judaism were a bad first attempt by God at fulfilling his covenant promises. It's not that they were a negative example to simply prepare us for the right answer in Jesus. It's not that Israel's undoubted faithfulness has wrecked God's covenant plan because God's righteousness is not dependent on the righteousness of his people. And it's not, therefore, that God was unfair in bringing his judgment on people who through their failure 
were part of advancing his plan. The answer to all of these misunderstandings, and many others, is that the God of the covenant has found a way of working through the mess of this world and even the failure of his chosen people to advance his covenant plan. And of course he's done that, as we're here next week, through his son Jesus Christ, and particularly through the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago that brought about the amazing and surprising climax of the covenant in a way that no one had ever expected. So we're almost there. We're almost through to verse 21 of chapter 3. And uh, those are the parts that Christians very often know better than the earlier parts and rejoice in and understandably so. But before we get to verse 21, from verse 9 onwards, Paul actually does a couple of things. Verse, first in verses 9 to 18, he assembles a host of quotations from the Old Testament, mainly from the Psalms. And why does he do that? Well, he does it to restate the major problem that has put the covenant in jeopardy, that Jews and Gentiles were alike under sin. So if you look at those verses, he says... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then he quotes again. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceits. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All those quotes assembled from the Old Testament, particularly, as I say, from the Psalms, to restate the major problem, that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. The most famous summary is probably the one that comes later on uh, in the chapter we'll look at next week, All Have Sinned and Fall Short of the glory of God but that's what basically Paul is saying there and then in verses 19 and 20 right at the end of this passage we're looking at this morning Paul reinforces this by showing that possession of God's law rather than elevating Jews to a position of safety their possession of God's law had actually worked to reveal this truth that they were as sinful as the rest of the world therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law Paul says through the law, we become conscious of sin. And that very mysterious role for the Jewish law, this very mysterious role that it had, Paul unpacks later on uh, in Romans chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8, and we'll wrestle with that more when we come to those chapters. But for now, as we reflect on the passage that we've looked at this morning, we need to I believe in our response, combined humility when we're confronted with the consistent failure of God's people, and that of course includes us. We need to combine this with gratitude at the amazing and continuing covenant love of God, which persists in using people just like us, even when we're revealed to be a major part of the problem. We must never be complacent about sin, that will be a completely false deduction to make from God's amazing grace. But that is possible for us to have our own versions of that today, 
you know, God's got to forgive us, that's his job. We must never be complacent about sin, even when we fervently believe in God's grace. We should also seek to do God's will. Knowing that we'll fail, and that because of God's grace, he can use those very failures for his glory. But we must continue to seek to do that will. We need to show gratitude, as I've emphasised this morning, to Israel and to the Jews for both the scriptures and the spiritual legacy that they've preserved for us to be able to inherit. I very often talk about the buildings of this church, the lounge and uh, these wonderful buildings we've got, this amazing legacy that's been passed on to the current members of Christchurch by those who've gone before. We're hugely grateful to those people that have gone before. That's why I put so much energy into trying to uh, create that exhibition uh, about Christchurch's history. But we need to feel that way towards our Jewish brothers and sisters as well. They've preserved through their history the very legacy that the Gentiles were able to receive and we should be forever grateful for that. But of course, most of all, we need to be grateful to God himself. To be grateful to God himself for what we're looking at next week. How God combined the justice that meant he had to judge the world with the grace that sent Jesus Christ to fulfil all righteousness. Do you remember when Jesus was going to get baptised and John the Baptist didn't want to baptise him? And why did Jesus get baptised? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, he said to John the Baptist, it's necessary to fulfil all righteousness. The righteousness that was God's side of fulfilling his covenant plan and the righteousness that was needed in response. When Jesus is baptised in the Jordan, just before he starts his public ministry, he's fulfilling all righteousness. He's fulfilling the covenant and of course, the God that sent Jesus Christ, we've got to be grateful for, to include both Jews and Gentiles, to include everyone who could place their faith in Jesus Christ so that they too would enter in to the covenant blessings of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your righteousness for the truth that you fulfill your covenant promises and you actually use the failure and the weakness and the wrong turnings of your own people in order to bring about your purposes. We thank you for that. We ask that we would make the right response. Would you make us humble? People who are willing to acknowledge our failures while still seeking your will. We thank you for your people Israel and the Jews and those who've carried your promises for so long. And Lord God, would we witness to our Jewish brothers and sisters through our gratitude to them and our firm belief that Jesus came to be the fulfilment of everything that Israel stood for. And Lord God, as we turn next week to see how Jesus came as the wonderful climax and fulfilment of the covenant we pray that you'd help us to remember all of the factors that made that necessary that all of us are alike under sin we thank you lord god that you're a god 
of covenant mercy and grace, who has found us and forgiven us. And we ask that you make us obedient to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen.